Well, I want to welcome you to Christ's journey today from wherever you may be joining us, whether it be right here among our Coral Gables family, our Coral Gables brothers and sisters in our campus here, or whether it be to our brothers and sisters in the south of Kindle, we love you, we are praying for you, or around the world at Church Online, we are so glad that you are with us. Man, I, am, I felt so moved over there during our worship, uh, the song part of our worship experience today. I don't know about you, it even got this white Irish boy like, yeah, all right, all right, I'm with you, I, I'm tapping my foot, I'm I'm moving. I'm grooving. Man, I got a song in my heart today that I really want to share with you, a song of unity. And I want to answer this question for you today and help bring some insight from the word of God today on this question. Is unity amidst division possible? Is unity amidst division possible? I think that this is a timely question that we really need to give some serious thought to today as the people of God, the church. Uh, and if you're visiting with us, if you're a guest with someone today, then I really hope that you hear the church and the heart of the church today, perhaps for the very first time on this question of unity. Division and discord seems to permeate into every generation, does it not? Every generation, it seems like unity and division and the divides of culture just continue to rear its head again and again and again. In fact, Mark Twain once wrote, history does not repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. And it rhymes these echoes of division. And it seems now that more than ever before, the rhymes of generations past is just screaming in our ears. Is it not just screaming loud and clear? Division seems to rule the day. It seems to rule the day. And whether you live in this generation or past generations or future generations, the divides of culture, politics, the divides of society continue to persevere on and on. It's systematic, it's institutional, and it is also very very personal, very personal. The discords that separate, the discords that exist out there also exist right here. As one theologian so aptly observed, every person is a civil war. Every person lives with this tension inside of us. We're inclined toward disunity. It's in, our, it's in our bones. It's in the very chains of our DNA to oppose each other and assert our will over one another. It could even be said that the, that this, that the very genesis of discord and discontent and division out there started right here. Right here. I mean, if you don't believe me, just take toddlers, for example. <laughs> right? I mean, many of you know that I've got this vivacious three-year-old little girl going on 23. Uh, that's her there. Her name is Hannah. In fact, this morning, we're going on this little day trip after church today, and she asked me, she said, Daddy, I want to make sure that you have your bags packed. You've got water for us. You've got my, my stuffed animals packed. And I said, yes, ma'am. Yes, I've got all of that. I mean, she's, she's this vivacious, amazing little, little girl. And I've also got this 18-month-old wild boy named Levi. And at nine months old, when Levi started rolling over, he, he found it so funny to attack his sister with that big old round belly of his, just boom, boom, just like launching it out, or like it was like missiles. Pew, pew, pew. And and my wife and I, we thought it was hilarious. So we would follow them around with our with our phone, and we would record it. Then we show all of our friends like how cool our kids are, like how cute they are. But every now and then, man, that nine month old little boy, he would chase his sister around. Like, well, we kind of roll around. I mean, it wasn't walking yet, but he would roll around. And when he would get to her, he would attack her with that belly to show her who was boss. 
And Naaman Saul, man, this tender-hearted little boy, Naaman Saul was attacking his sister. And it made me think about, how did he learn how to do this? I mean, I stopped attacking my wife with my belly a long time ago. I mean, before they were born. So, so how did he learn how to do this? I mean, it just seems that, that the very history of our faith, the very history of humanity itself, from the very beginning, all the way back in the garden, insists, it insists that Division began when first humanity made that fateful decision to assert their will over God's. And every human being since, every human being since then has been fighting this war from within to control God, to control others, to control our own heart. We're walking civil wars. We hate our sin and we love our sin all at the same time the divisive tension that we observe out there starts right here. It all starts right here. And if you're anything like me, you got to wonder, is there any hope for unity out there? Is there any hope for unity among the very political institutions that we create, the social institutions we create, the religious institutions, family institutions? Is there any hope for unity amidst this world? Is there any hope for unity right here. And if there is a time of all times, now is that time that we need to address the vision as the people of God and seriously ask this question, is unity amidst the vision possible? Is it even possible? Because if it's not, then we need to find some different avenues. But if it is, then it can change everything for not just here, for not just for our own lives, our own families, the the people that we love, but it could change everything out there. What if we asked the question, what if the church made a culture splash for unity rather than a culture clash of division? What if the church became known for unity and for seeking unity among the city and for seeking unity among the people in which who gather together as the church? What if the church soaked the culture with the refreshing waters of forgiveness and grace, bearing witness to how the kingdom of God actually intersects with our world and not against our world? And what if, as we did so, we began experiencing renewal, a refreshment of that splashing among our own heart for forgiveness and for unity? What if our lives looked like that? Because if history does indeed rhyme and foretells of our future to come, then I, for one, am ready to sing a different song. I'm ready to sing a different tune. And I hope you feel like you're ready to sing a different tune with me because I believe that of all the song sheets that we have in front of us as the church, the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ephesus is the greatest one that we can look to for a moment like this when we as the church and we as, the, as just a people, as a society, are seeking unity amidst the division surrounding us. Few cities in the ancient world compared to our own Miami as Ephesus. The Roman Empire revered Ephesus. It revered it much in the same way as the Americas reveal Miami as a gateway city. Ephesus was a powerful commercial port in the capital of Rome's Asian province. The city boasted one of seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, otherwise known as uh, Diana in Roman mythology, the, the goddess of virginity and childbirth. The very city itself idolized womanhood. It also boasted a wide cultural influence among the Roman world for arts and drama, constructing a 25,000-seat theater. 25,000 seats. This was in the second century BC, second only to the Roman Colosseum. And moreover, Ephesians 
satisfied their intellectual cravings each morning at the third largest local library in the world capable of housing 12,000 scrolls and built to face the rising sun to the east to capture the morning sunrise. It was to this progressive, powerful, culturally-minded, influential city that Paul established the earliest Christian movement in Asia Minor who faithfully helped other people in that region find and follow Jesus Christ well into the 5th century beginnings of Islam. So let me ask you this. If you were Paul writing to this early church plant in this city in particular moment in time, as well as for churches to come, what would be the single greatest human and theological issue that you would want to make sure God addressed? What would be the single greatest issue? That for Paul under Holy Spirit guidance was this, is unity amidst division possible? Is unity amidst our culture possible? Is unity amongst our relationships, our families, unity amidst our own heart possible? And he began his letter in such an extraordinary way, so much different than any other letter that he wrote in the New Testament. He began his letter with one unbroken 12-verse lyric, unbroken in the Greek, one single sentence, just proclaiming over and over, splashing, splashing over, just like I'm doing with these first two rows here with splash, the splash zone, like just splashing people with, with, the, with, the, with the hope of unity. And I want to read it to you in its entirety. Unbroken, this is one unbroken lyric beginning in verses 3 all the way through 14. He writes this, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because why? Because we are united. We are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ, another rich image of unity. This is what he wanted to do. Nothing forced God to do this. The created cosmos didn't dictate that God do this. He did this because he wanted to do it, and it also gave him great pleasure. Just let that, let that just sink in for the next few moments. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Verse nine, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And then in the beginning of verse 10, he, Paul says, and this is the plan. And I want you to pay careful attention to this because you may hear among circles of friends, family members, coworkers, colleagues, whatever, I hear this all the time. Does God really have a plan for any of this? Did God, this, is God just letting all of this happen because God wants to let this happen? Or does God actually have a plan for how to restore this? Is God distant in some like cosmic era? Or does God care about anything happening? Well, Paul says that God indeed has a plan, and then he is about to tell us what this plan is. And this is what theologians across the centuries have called the great open secret. This is the great open secret. That at the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. God's plan is not amorphous. 
It's not some plan that, that exists out there, but it is a plan to unite all things together. And furthermore, in verse 11, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. And in verse 12, God's purpose was that we Jews, and so here Paul directs his attention to the people of God for just a moment. God's plan was that we Jews, who were the first to put our trust in Jesus Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles, who were basically everyone else outside of that covenant, everyone outside of the people of God, that you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believe in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. And this is the Spirit's guarantee. This is the promise that God gave to us and the guarantee of that promise that he will give us. So Paul here is saying the people of God then, everyone outside of the people of God are coming together, united in Jesus Christ, and he's giving us the inheritance that he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. This whole unbroken lyric, moving toward a future of unity, moving toward a present reality of unity. And the reason why God did all of this to begin with, Paul states in his final verse in the lyric, he did this so that we would praise and glorify him. And so in response to this unity, in response demands our praise and demands that we glorify him. That key thought of Ephesians is this, Jesus Christ is the center in whom all things unite and the bond who unites all things. Jesus is both the rallying point and the glue. He's the rallying point that calls all of us together in the glue that forms us into this new community, this new reality in an old world that in Christ, the kingdom of God is right here and it's right now. It's up close and personal with every single one of us. It's the very air that we breathe. And in this lyric, Paul identifies 12 images for unity. And I wanna just look at three of them in particular with you this morning. First, at the very top of his lyric, Paul wrote this, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault. God chose us for the purpose of forming our character as ones who had become what he describes in the Greek, hagios kaimamas. Hagios kaimamas. And I just want to look at these two Greek words, this Greek phrase, just for a moment with you to unpack what it means to live according to this way and bear witness to unity. This Greek word hagios literally means reverent. It literally means reverent. Often it gets translated as holy, as being set apart, but to the core of this word, it means reverent. Someone who is reverent expresses a right ordering of God, others, and the self. Of God, others, and the self. To live a hagios life means to live a life where you have rightly ordered the world according to the way that God created it and designed it. This other Greek word that Paul used is amamos which literally means here an unblemished sacrifice. Now this word paired up with hagios would have really created some tension within the first century hearers because amamos refers to an animal, to an unblemished animal. So Paul, for his hearers, they would have thought, wait a minute, so you want me to live hagios, which we get, that's a character word, but amamos, that's, a, that's an animal word. How does that come together? Well, for Paul, what he wanted 
the community to know and what God wants us to know is that in the same manner that God desired only a perfect, unblemished sacrifice, God desires only the best you. God desires only the best from you. And to live in the life of to live in life in Christ, it means to live a rightly ordered world where you are offering your whole self, the best self. In Spanish, this Greek word amamos literally means what? We love. That's right. We express our love to God as we make our whole life a sacrifice to Him. Expresamos nuestro amor a Dios como hacemos toda nuestra vida un sacrificio para él. Love and wholeness dispel all division and fear. To live and mamos means to offer your whole life, your whole life, every part of your life. It means offering all of your work. It means offering all of your entrepreneurial spirit and your creative abilities. It means offering all of your friendships, all of your relationships, all of your being, all of your time, all of your resources as a pleasant sacrifice. And as you do so, it will be received as a love offering by the God who created you even before the world began. Just let that sink in, that even before the world began, before any of this existed, God chose you and God desires you. Oh man, I just, sometimes I just catch myself thinking that, letting that sink in. The second image I want to highlight is from verse five. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's use of adoption language in his letters to Galatia, Ephesus, and Rome radically And let me emphasize this word radically redefined what it meant for them to understand their redemption and their life in Jesus Christ. But let me also call out that in our day and age, in the 21st century, adoption language evokes a wide range of emotions, depending on our experience with adoption. But let me call your attention to Paul's use here in the first century, because the way that Paul wrote this and what God wants you to know about your redemption can radically help you understand just what God did for you in Jesus Christ. You see, adoption rarely occurred in the ancient world. Typically, only the wealthy elite adopted. And it was only for the sake of carrying on their family name in the circumstance of no heir, which most of the people who heard this letter did not apply to. Adoption gave full rights and responsibilities to that child as if that child hereditarily belonged to the adoptive family, much like our laws today. No lawful distinction was made between children and their adoptive parents, but under Roman law, they took it one step further. Under Roman law, they were considered a new person, as, as a new being, essentially, with a new name, so new that the Roman magistrate would stand before the adoptive family and the natural family, and he would forgive that child of all of their debts and all of their obligations to the natural family as if that had never happened. So you see the imagery that Paul's evoking here in using adoption language. The doctrine of adoption is so vital to understanding the gospel and the calling of the church. It signifies the redemptive power of what God did for you and for me and for the entire world. He gave you a brand new start, 
a brand new start, the God of the second chance that we just sang about just a few moments ago. That, that is the doctrine of adoption, the God of the second chance. From the very beginning, God desired to live in family with you and with me, not as distant and abstract, not away from us, but as up close and personal with us, as an up close personal God and who, who desires to walk with us in the very coolness of the night as the Genesis author described at the very beginning of creation. But our sin and our tendency and inclination toward division divided that family and destroyed it, consequently making us deserving of death. Yet God's choice, God's decision to adopt us over again, assuming our debt of death as his obligation, restored us as his very sons and daughters to his family line with all the privileges and rights to his kingdom. That's the good news. That's what Paul wants to evoke using this language both then and right now. His adoption canceled all of our debt and consequences as if they had never happened. God took us out of the power of death and into the family of life. Paul went on later to say in his letter to Galatia, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir, an heir to his very kingdom. Mm, man, I mean, this is like, this is like, the, this is the best news for the church in Ephesus in a modern city just like Miami. This is the best news anyone could hear especially in a city where it's so fast-paced and it's so about making a way for, for ourselves. This truly is the only thing that can surpass that. Listen, for those of you who place your trust in Jesus, I want you to know today, and I want to remind you, that as adopted sons and daughters, none of your failures, none of your history, none of your past has any bearing on your life now. When God made you his adopted sons and daughter, it was forgiven as if it had never happened. And for those of you who may not yet trust Jesus, you may be checking this out, and you may be just a guest with us at our church today, I want you to know that the same truth also applies to you. Just the same way as it applies to you and to others around you. No difference. It applies to our families. It applies to our friends. It applies to our colleagues that aren't in this room and may not yet trust Jesus. That truth still applies to them all the same. Imagine a city. Imagine a community, a whole, a whole culture awakened to this new reality. Because other faithful ch churches just like us share this good news in a world so desperately longing a new song a new rhyme for a new generation. Now, the last image that I want to feature is from verses six and seven. And I want to quickly go through this with you. Paul wrote, God is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Just like hagios kaimamos, that phrase, Paul uses another Greek word here to conjure up another very specific image from the hearers who heard this letter. This English word purchase derives from this other Greek word, apolutrosis, which literally meant a payment of ransom, redemption, and deliverance. And this word would have immediately zoomed them back to the Passover narrative, immediately for everyone who heard it, whether they were 
Jewish, part of the people of God or not, everyone would have heard that word and understood, oh, okay, Paul is referring to the Passover here. Well, the Passover, for those of you who may not know, was the night when the angel of death visited the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn male of every household. You can read the story in Exodus 12. I highly commend it to you. It, it appears violent on the surface. It is a violent narrative. However, the sins of the people demanded justice. But the people of God, and or, I'm sorry, God actually in that act of justice, provided a substitute for those who listened and obeyed. He promised to rescue the people from God from their impending judgment if they sprinkled the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. Thereby, the angel of the Lord would pass over their home. And for those who heard this and who did this, God rescued those people from their slavery and led them into the promised land. A a beautiful narrative that just echoes of Jesus Christ. God bought back for, his, for himself, his very people from slavery at his own expense, foreshadowing the ultimate price that God would later pay to rescue the world from the slave master of sin itself. Now, forgiveness is that true deliverance. Forgiveness is the true deliverance. New life as his own adopted sons and daughters is that new promised land in which we get to live. This is our inheritance. This is what it means to live into this reality. And as Paul closes the lyric, the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us what he promised. It is that sweet foretaste of life to come with the king. And let me tell you, it's a promise. It's a guarantee. And Paul expresses that because he wanted his hearers to know then and now that this isn't a a half-hearted promise or a strategic bet, but this is a true 100% guarantee that the Holy Spirit here and now in our church, living in and among us, Sending us out into the world is God's guarantee of what will take place later on. And our job now as the church is to tell the world this good news, that there is a different and better way than the divisive reality in which so many of our friends and family and some of us live. There's a better way than that. And that's the application of this lyric. If you want an application point, that's it. It's less an explicit do this or do that kind of passage, but more of a geographical landscape of where we live. Paul sets in motion in these 12 verses, a geographical landscape in which we live. It's kind of like looking at Miami-Dade on Google Maps and seeing the whole geographical connection point of this county, not the turn by turn, how to get to and from. This is where we live. This is the air that we breathe for those who follow Jesus. This great lyric proclaims that uh, the landscape that our Heavenly Father set in motion, how he blessed you in Jesus, how he chose you in Jesus, how he predestined you in Jesus, poured grace on you in Jesus, the one whom he loves, gave redemption to you through Jesus, lavished grace on you through Jesus, made known to you the mystery of his will as he purposed in Jesus, how God intends to bring everything together into unity under Jesus, provided you with an inheritance through Jesus, gave you hope in Jesus, marked you in Jesus with the seal of salvation and guarantees the redemption of all of his people through Jesus. This is where we live. This is where we live. This is what it looks like to live according to the way of Jesus Christ. And man, this changed my life three years ago. It changed everything for me as one who had been following Jesus for a while, but was starting to get confused and was starting to feel lost in in our culture. 
And I remember going through this passage and reading it and understanding how Paul wrote it and then understanding all the theological nuances that I just explained to you in the 12 image of unity, not just for out there, but for right here. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, like I know who I am and I remember who I am. Listen, division results always. Division always results when we forget where we live. Division out there, division right here you will feel dissatisfied and divided and you will feel all that tension that springs up in every single one of us, myself included, when you forget where you live. So I wanna offer you two practices today that can keep your mind on the landscape of where we live. The, the practices of worship and prayer, worship and prayer, worship and prayer. This seems so obvious, but it's not obvious because if it were, then peace and unity would win out more than it does in the church. Worship and prayer, worship, worship and prayer. Worship recreates the soul. In worship, we consciously declare with our voices, with our bodies, the rejection of the false inadequacies that I want to define us in order to affirm the real reality that exists right here in and among us. The real reality of God's redemption, God's adoption, and God's forgiveness. One theologian wrote to worship is to remember who owns the house. Yeah, man, is it, man, I feel that. Is it you or is it God? Who owns the house? And every morning, I admit, I have to wake up in the morning and I have to consciously declare today, God, you own the house. Not me, because I am naturally inclined in all that I do to want to own the house and take over, to take charge, but not me. God owns the house. Worship includes our song. Worship includes our anthems of hope, and it also includes our time. It includes our talents. It includes our bodies, our strength. It includes our treasures, our resources, to which God has entrusted to us. It includes our life. It includes Amamas, everything, wholeness. Worship includes all of our whole life coming together to declare to the world who owns the house. Man, all of us worship something. And eventually all of us become what we love. And so I got to ask you, if you feel divided and if you feel discontent this morning, then perhaps it's because you're worshiping something other than the God who made you for so much more. And prayer holds this reality before us. To clasp your hands in prayer, one theologian wrote, is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Prayer speaks to the God who made order out of chaos. So find a quiet place in your home. Slow down the momentum of life and clasp your hands together to prepare for the uprising. In his final hours, after sharing communion with his disciples, Jesus prayed to his heavenly father one of the final prayers that Jesus would give before going to the cross. And of all the prayers that Jesus prayed, listen to what he said. I am praying not only for these disciples, for these 12 among me, but also for who will ever believe in me through their message, you and me. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, just as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will know what? They will believe that you sent me. Is unity amidst the vision possible? Absolutely. It's absolutely possible. 
In fact, not only is it possible, it's absolutely necessary. And it begins right here. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for not letting us go. When we decided to make our own way and assert our own will over yours, God, we thank you for not letting us go. In fact, we thank you for doing everything to redeem us, to reconcile us into one, one with you, at peace with our brothers and sisters, and at peace within. God, now give us the courage to live this way, to believe in this, to trust in you, and to share with the world, to share with our city, to share with our colleagues, our friends, our family, to share with those closest in our life that all of us, that they, that we, that all of us have been adopted into your family. We've been made new. We've been forgiven. We've been set free. This is truth. This is the landscape in which we live. And so, Father, we ask you now that you, that you give us courage as a church to do our part. That you lead us into these places that you take us there boldly, that whether that be in a small group within our own family, just being willing to share a few seconds of our own story, God, whatever it may be, I just pray that you give us the courage to do it. In the power of your Holy Spirit, who is your guarantee that you will unite all things together. As we make this prayer in your name. Now with heads still bowed, if if you want to join the movement today, if you want to, if you've recognized for the first time today that, that you are indeed an adopted son or daughter, that you've been set free, that this truth applies to you now, then would you pray this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I, I now know that I, I've made my own way for so long, God. I now know that I have asserted my will over yours and so many people, even hurting some people because of it. But God, today is a new day. We begin a new journey. And so, Lord, I pray that, that your Holy Spirit come into my life. I pray that, that your forgiveness for me becomes real, that I accept it and know it, and that, Lord, you give me the courage to begin today anew, to live in this new landscape that is at once so familiar but also so different. But, God, I know that with me that I can do this, that I can do all things, that I can, that I can follow you. So, Lord, I pray that, that you come into my heart and that you sit on my throne, that you become Lord of my life. If you prayed that prayer with me today, would you raise your hand so I may bless you and see you? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you in the middle. Thank you to my right. God, for the church, I pray that you be with us as we as we can finish worshiping today, as we go out, as we live Monday through Saturday, God, I pray that you be with us. I pray that your Holy Spirit be on us. I pray that you unite our own hearts so that we can bear witness to your unity in this world. And I pray, God, that where we see division, where we see discord, God, I pray that you, I pray that you give us the worst to say. I pray that you give us the, the, the a heart of unity to speak into it and to bear witness to a different reality, a different narrative. So Lord, as we go out today, I pray that you be with us as you send us out in your name, amen.